Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 through 15 is where we're going to be covering tonight. It says, And he, this is Jesus, called him his twelve disciples, and he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now these twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it, and if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Now, we won't spend too much time tonight breaking down the names of the apostles and digging into their scriptural history very much. But I want to take a second just to kind of point out a couple of things from the list of the 12 apostles. As you know, there were more disciples than just the 12. Let me remind you, we always hear about the 12 disciples. There were way more than 12. And we see in the book of Acts, when they go to replace Judas after he commits suicide, when they go to replace him, they were told to choose from among them one who had been with them from the beginning, from Jesus' baptism all the way until his ascension. So it's obvious there were those who had always been with him, not just the 12. We see in the, in the uh, account of Jesus being arrested in the garden that John Mark was in the garden at this time, same time. And they went to grab him and he ran out of his clothes to get away. How was John Mark there? Well, he, there was always more than 12. We see in Luke chapter 8 that the scripture teaches us that there were women who traveled with them, supplying them out of their own means. Why were they there? Because there were always more than 12. We see in John chapter 6 that and Jesus says, Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. And upon hearing this, many of his disciples no longer followed him. Where did they come from? There was always more than 12. But he, I could go on, by the way. I hope you get the idea. They, but Jesus designated 12 of them to be apostles. And as you see here, he gave them authority to go out and to preach and to teach and to heal and to cast out demons. We'll get into that in a little bit. But what I want to do is just point out a couple of interesting tidbits from this list and other gospel accounts and an account in the book of Acts of the list of the 12 guys. In all of the lists of the 12 apostles in the gospels, Peter is always listed first in every one. And I'm going to show that to you in just a second. Peter is always listed first. And guess who's always listed last? Judas, the one who betrayed him. Now, be careful when you say Judas, because you're going to see there's another Judas. But Judas the Iscariot, who betrayed him, is always listed last. And as you're going to see in just a bit, there's only one place that Judas isn't listed last. And it's because he's not listed. And then that's, in, that's going to be in Acts chapter 1, when they list the 11 who were left. So go with me to Mark chapter 3. Let me show you real quick a couple other accounts. Mark chapter 3, look at verses 13 through 19. And we'll see the list there as well. And I'm giving you these places so you can go back and double check what I'm showing you here. It's kind of a fun little study. In Mark chapter 3, verses 13, it says, And he, Jesus, went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, 
and they came to him, and he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, the sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Jump over to Luke's account in chapter 6. Go to Luke chapter 6 and look at verses 12 through 16. In Luke 6, starting in verse 12, the scripture says, In these days he, again Jesus, went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who is called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. I'm going to give you one more place. Write this down and go turn with me to Acts chapter 1. Look at verses 12 through 14. In Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 14, the scripture says, And then they returned to Jerusalem. This is after Jesus ascended into heaven. They returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. All right. Now I want to point out a few things. As I've already said, Peter is always mentioned first in all of the lists. Judas is always listed last, except in Acts 1 because he's not mentioned because he's killed himself. But there's also something interesting here. The names are always listed in three groups of four. And the first name in each of the groups of four is always the same. The names in those groups are mixed up sometimes and not in the exact same order. But the, 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 the lead name in each group is the same. For example, as you see, the first one in the first group is Peter. And in that, if you look at all the gospel accounts, even in the book of Acts, it'll always say Peter. And then it'll list who else? Andrew, his brother. And who, what other two brothers? James and John, they're always in the first group. Peter's always the first one. The next person that leads the next group is always Philip. And with Philip, you can see, with Philip, there's going to be Thomas and Bartholomew and Matthew. All right? Now, in all the accounts, that's the next group of, of four. And Philip is always first, but sometimes the other guys are mixed around. And the last one is James, the son of Alphaeus. In each of the gospel accounts, he leads the third group of four, Again, the names are mixed around a few times after that, but always it starts with Peter and then Philip and James, the son of Alphaeus, in each of the subgroups. It's just an interesting little tidbit. But some of you might have caught something interesting if you were quick enough to follow along. Did anybody notice that the lists weren't exactly the same? Anybody else notice that they weren't the same? Actually, if you'll do a study, you'll find that Matthew and Mark, they call a certain disciple Thaddeus, Yet Luke and Acts, he's called J the, oh, sorry, Judas, the son of James. It's the same person. Now there's speculation as to why. Some people say maybe Thaddeus was a nickname. But I lean toward the fact that I think Thaddeus might be his new name. If you're noticing the accounts, sometimes they'll point out Simon, whom Jesus called Peter, James and John, whom Jesus called the sons of, sons of thunder. I wonder if Matthew doesn't call 
him by his new name, and Mark does the same thing. Because how does Matthew describe himself as who? But he doesn't call himself Levi, which the other guys did. Remember, we studied this earlier. Matthew calls himself Matthew in his account, and they all do in the other accounts. But if you go back and read the stories of when Matthew first met Jesus, his name wasn't Matthew, his name was Levi. I personally think that Thaddeus is the name that Jesus gave him, and Mark and Matthew use that name. But the other guys bring out that it's Judas, the son of James, which is who he was. Still is, but has a new name given by Jesus. All right. Again, we could do a whole study for weeks that I know you would love just breaking down every name and doing all the study behind each one. But that's not what we're here for. Um, I'm capable, but I wouldn't even enjoy it myself. So, all right. So when Jesus sent these men out, he gave them authority over unclean spirits. And he did so to demonstrate with power that the kingdom of God was in their midst. That's part of what he was doing. He, when he sent them out to proclaim the good news of the kingdom and tell them the kingdom of heaven was at hand, he gave them authority. To over, over unclean spirits. You see that in chapter 10, verse 1. Look again. And he called to him his 12 disciples, and he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. Where did that authority come from? It came from him. It came from Jesus. Of course, that came from the Father as well. But Jesus gave them authority to go do that. Now, jump over to Matthew chapter 12 and just look at real quickly at verse 28. Again, we will be breaking this section down in great detail when we get to it, so I'm not going to spend too much time here. But Jesus, because he's been accused of casting out demons by the prince of demons, Jesus says in verse 28 of Matthew 12, But if by, it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus gave these men authority to go do these things. Now, their main purpose was not to heal and to cast out demons, but to what? But to preach. Their main purpose was to preach. God had given them authority to heal and to cast out demons for the purposes of the people there realizing the power of God. The kingdom of God has come upon you. Someone greater than Satan is here. Yet at the same time, their ministry wasn't healing and casting out demons. Their ministry was to go and to preach. That's what they were supposed to do. I say that to you for this reason. I believe God still heals. I believe God's still doing miracles. I don't believe that there are individuals who have been given that power to go do healing ministries like some people unfortunately do. Well, if you see anybody out there and their ministry is healing and their ministry is casting out demons... That's not what the ministry is about. The ministry is always supposed to be preaching the word. God does give that power and authority at times for the purposes of gaining a hearing for the message. It's a too deep of a study to get into tonight. But I think one of the reasons why some people wrestle with the fact that we don't see as much as this as we used to is the purpose was to gain a hearing for the gospel. Once the hearing for the gospel had been opened, the need of the miracles isn't necessary anymore. And we live in a place in which the gospel has been spread. An opening for preaching and teaching the gospel has been given rapidly and, 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 and all over. God's still doing crazy stuff like that, it seems to us, in other parts of the world. He's still doing it. There are some people who think that God has sought, ceased doing miracles. I'm not one of those people. The people that tend to be what they call cessationists, that God has stopped doing those things, Take their passage from 1 Corinthians 13 where it talks about how uh, pretty soon this is going to cease and that's going to cease. But if you look at the context of 1 Corinthians 13, the context is heaven. That's when all that stuff's going to cease. It's in heaven. But at the same time, beware of anybody that just says, man, my ministry is healing. My ministry is... No, no, no. 
That's not what it's about. The purpose was to gain a hearing for the gospel, to open a door so people would want to listen to the message. And if you do, again, I, I could take the whole night laying this all out for you, but I don't think that's what God wants us to do. I could show you how scripturally there are times that Paul just allowed things to go on for four days, and then he finally cast the demon out of these girls after four days. It wasn't what he was about. But eventually he finally said to the demons, come out. There are other times you'll see Paul said, I left Tropimus sick at Miletus. Why? Well, that's because his ministry wasn't healing. There are going to be times that you'll see that God used in Acts chapter, uh, chapter 4, where they heal this man who is the cripple. You'll find that that was to gain a hearing. And all of a sudden people started because they saw the miracle. Again, but that wasn't what they were about. They were about preaching the gospel. All right. So we'll leave that for that for right now. Actually, sometime after this, we see Jesus send out 72 others and give them civil, similar instructions and warnings. Go to, go to Luke chapter 10. Some people have thought that this was the same thing as what we just saw in Matthew chapter 10, but it's not. It's different. In Luke chapter 10, look at verses 1 through 12. It says, After this the Lord appointed 72 others, and He sent them on ahead of Him, two by two, into every town and place where He Himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you and remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages." Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you, heal the sick in it, and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Jump down to verses 17 and following. In verse 17, the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. What's the most important thing in this? Salvation and the message and the gospel. That's the most important thing. Beware of anybody that makes anything else the most important thing. Okay? Now, with this, though, we see something, and, and we're going to, in just a little bit, I like I told you last week when I made my commercial, how I'm going to teach you how to be good laborers in the harvest field, God's harvest field. But I want to deal with an interesting balance that is brought out here in Matthew chapter 10 uh, in other places of Scripture, having to do with financial support of God's ministers. There's something here that I want to bring out and deal with. For those of you that, were, that are here tonight that were at Men in Motion, I covered it in greater detail at lunch today than I will uh, tonight. But I want to bring out a few things here to you from Matthew chapter 10 that deals with an interesting balance that I think needs to be brought out, especially in the day and age in which we live, that deals with how God takes care of and provides financially for His ministers. And at the same time, I hope you also hear for you and I as well. Listen to what Jesus tells them in Matthew chapter 10, and starting in verse 7. 
He says, and proclaim as you go, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. And then he says something very interesting here. He says, you received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff for the laborer deserves his food. Now, we're going to take some time and deal with this and what he's talking about here, because it'll be very helpful for us to grasp what's going on. Here in Matthew 10, Jesus tells them that since they received their salvation without paying for it, they should never charge anyone to hear it. That's what he's saying. You received without paying. You do your ministry. You give without pay. Let's be honest. With the authority to cast out demons and to heal people, don't you think they could make some money? Don't you think they could draw a crowd and fill an auditorium with people all wanting to come pay a few bucks in the hopes of being healed? But Jesus says, no, your salvation was given to you freely as a gift. You didn't earn it. You didn't pay for it. I don't want you charging anybody to hear the message of the gospel. Go with me to Isaiah 55. Look at verses 1, 2, and 3. Isaiah 55. Look at verses 1, 2, and 3. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. Here, God's word says, come, and I will give you life. And you don't have to pay for it. You don't have any money? Come on, have wine and milk. Come to me. Hopefully you do understand this. If you're saved, you didn't buy it. It was a gift of God. It's not of work, so no one can boast. And you didn't earn it. If you think you could pay for it, you totally don't get it. It was a gift. And so Jesus says to his disciples, if you've received this freely, don't you dare charge anybody to hear it. Now, I got to be honest with you, folks. I'm going to go into more detail on this in just a bit here. This was a passage that God used to convict me a while back while I was doing radio programs through the Gospel of Matthew. And as I came to this passage, I felt God really speak to me personally and say, Jim, I don't want you to ever sell your book ever again. I don't want you to charge anybody if they want a DVD or a CD. What about shipping and handling, Lord? Don't charge them anything. I, and I don't want to ever say to somebody, you can hear God's word if you have enough money. Or I will give you this teaching on God's word if you'll make a donation. You ever heard that stuff? Yeah, generous donation. But biblically... God's word is very clear that those who preach the gospel should never tell anybody they have to pay for it in any way. That's why on this Bible cruise, for those of you who have been in, this is our sixth one coming up, so those of you who began in the beginning, we used to charge an, uh, an administration type of a fee, didn't we? We got convicted that we want you to pay the same amount that the person that's on the cruise ship that we're inviting to come to the Bible studies paid. Whatever they paid to get on the boat, that's what you're going to pay to get on the boat. 
You don't have to worry about DVDs, we'll pay for them. You don't have to worry about them. It costs us money to use the theater that we're going to be using. It costs us money to use their sound guy and their light guy and all those people that have to be there. It costs us money to rent some of the equipment that we have to use that's on the ship. It we costs us money to make the brochures and to make the flyers and to make the business cards we're passing out to everybody in the ship and, and the notebooks and all this stuff. And God said, anything that's tied to the preaching of the gospel, don't ever put a price tag on it. Give it away free. And folks, let me tell you, the second half of what he says here has begun to happen to us. He has bombed us financially to the point that when we trusted him and never started, we stopped worrying about how we're going to cover ourselves, how we're going to cover expenses. Have you ever heard churches dealing with that? How are we going to break even? How are we going to make expenses? The moment we stopped worrying about that and just gave it away free, God bombed the ministry like you wouldn't believe. And I know some of you are saying, don't tell people that. They'll stop giving. No, we don't look to you to take care of us. We've learned to look to God. And that's why the second half is what it is. Listen to what he says again. He says, I want you to go out and I want you to do this without charging anybody. But then says, he says something crazy. He says, acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey. You don't bring extra clothes. In other words, what he says is, oh, and I don't want you to try to take care of yourself then either. Isn't that crazy? God, you want me to go out and do this and not charge, yet at the same time, you don't want me to try to cover expenses. No. No. I want you to trust me. So here we see a balance. Actually, before we get to that, let me just say that Jesus tells them not to bring any money because the laborer deserves his food. We see that here. In other words, the Bible says very clearly that the laborer should be paid by those who receive the blessing. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 5. Let me show you what I'm talking about. 1 Timothy chapter 5, look at verses 17 and 18. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, look at the instructions there in verses 17 and 18. It says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. There it is again. Here God, through Paul, says to the church, you need to be giving your elders, the spiritual leaders in your church, double honor especially those whose role is preaching and teaching the gospel. And oh, by the way, if you're curious about what the double honor means, financially. That's what it's talking about. Now, it's interesting how churches will go out of their way to give the pastor a special parking space. Well, they can't call me Jim, but they'll call me pastor. People say all the time, I can't call you Jim. I've got, I, have, I only feel comfortable calling you pastor. And I always look at them and say, I don't call you Sunday school teacher. I don't call you usher. I don't call you sound man. I, that's just the role that God's given me. You want to give double honor? Don't give them a special parking space or once a month do something on Pastor Appreciation Month. Pay them. Pay them generously. The Bible says so that those who have received the spiritual blessing should give a financial blessing to those who give. So give them the spiritual blessing. The Bible is very clear about that. Yet beware of any preacher that says, Give me money. I told the guys today at Men in Motion when I was teaching on just this concept and this topic from other passages we're not going to get into tonight. And I told them, I said, my message today is to talk to you about giving to preachers 
and to warn you about any preacher that talks to you about giving to preachers. I'm not trying to buy a jet plane to travel. Actually, Paul, if you do a study, went out of his way to not do that so that no one could ever accuse him of being in it for the money. As you're going to see in just a second, he did receive gifts every now and then, but there were certain places who were thinking that he was in it for the money or other people had accused him of that. And he said, even though I could command you to take care of me, I'm not going to do it. And I won't take any money from you so that you can't take away my boasting that I preach the gospel to you free of charge. And over and over, he said, you guys know I've coveted no one's silver. I've coveted no one's gold. You yourselves know I've worked with my own hands and I paid for everything myself. One of the coolest things that we started with Just Preacher Ministries 15 years ago was the, when the board was put together, they said, Jim, every church you go to, you take the pastor and his families out to lunch after the, you preach on that Sunday morning. We've been doing it for 14, 15 years. He's, they said, we don't want you to go to a church and be a drain. We're there to take care of you. You go take care of them. And what's cool is, and I've been over 15 years preaching in a lot of the same churches over and over, and some of the pastor's kids will see me show up, and they get bright eyes like, I remember him. We're going out to lunch today because I always tell them, it ain't McDonald's. Pick a good spot. Pick some place. And some of these pastor's kids don't get to get, eat out very much, and we get to treat them. And it's been cool to watch how we decide to, we're not going to have you take care of us. We want to take care of you. And God takes care of the servants who put their trust in him and not in the people around them. So he said to him, don't you go looking for them to take care of you. And don't you go looking to take care of yourself either. Either you trust me. Go to Philippians chapter four. Look at verses 10 through 20. Yeah, we don't usually get past verse 8, I know, in, in chapter 4, but we're going to go all the way to, chapter, to verse 20. Philippians 4, starting in verse 20. Yes, yeah, verses 10 through 20. Sorry, we're going to end in verse 20. Thank you. Philippians 4, starting in verse 10. Paul says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet, he says, it was kind of you to share my troubles. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only, even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I've received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And I know this for a fact, Paul says, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. By the way, we love to quote how God will supply all our needs. The context is to the people who are generous to the people in the ministry. That's why in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, after it talks about he loves a cheerful giver, not under compulsion, but gladly doing it. And then he goes on and says, if you are generous, he'll give you more seed to be able to be more generous. He will abound in every way. And not only that, in all righteousness. Folks, listen to me. I could take you and you can write this down and look at it later on. First Corinthians chapter nine, verses one through 18. Paul goes into great detail about this and about how they're supposed to have been taking care of him and the other apostles. 
But because they were questioning his motives, he didn't want to take any money from them so that he could say, I preached the gospel without charge. Yet at the same time, as we just saw here, it wasn't that he never took any money, but even when he did, he said to him, I'm not thanking you because I really was in need. I've, been, I've learned a long time ago that when I have a lot, God's got me. When I have little, God's still got me. And then he says this, I'm actually more concerned that you get the reward. I'm talking to you and thanking you for your gift because it's going to benefit you. And then he says something crazy which breaks all the rules. He said, and thank you for the gift that you gave me. Actually, he says two things that breaks all the rules. The first thing he said was this. He said, uh, you guys know that in, when it comes to giving and receiving, no other church helped me except you. Unfortunately, folks, I've for years dealt with missionary organizations that send out missionaries, and many of them will tell their missionaries, you can't go out in the field until you have proven that you've got enough support. They're, they're like that a lot. Some of you probably know some. They're sitting there waiting to go. And the mission organization says, as soon as you have proven that you'll be financially taken care of, that's when we'll let you go. goes against the scripture. Jesus said, you go out there and you do what I called you to do and you watch me take care of you. Don't wait until you've got enough money to do it. And then he says something else. He said, I have received full payment. I'm more than well supplied because of your gift through Epaphroditus. Like I said earlier, most ministries would never say that. Because then people might stop giving. If you're looking to man to provide for you, yeah, you'll come up with all these strategies to cover yourselves. Your heart's following, trusting God to do what he's asked you to do. By the way, this doesn't just apply to preachers and teachers. This applies to all of us. Listen to me. You go do what God's asked you to do, and you trust him to take care of you and stop looking to man. Oh, but beware of anybody that's out there trying to get you to give to their ministry. God will put it on people's hearts. God will take care of it. You leave that to the Lord. But let's go back to what I promised you we'd be doing tonight. Matthew chapter 10. I don't know how many of you caught it, but I believe Matthew chapter 10 is the first answer to the prayer that God told us to pray in Matthew chapter 9, verses 37 and 38. Remember how we ended up? In Matthew chapter 9, verses 37 and 38, then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send laborers out into his harvest. We've already dealt with this in detail. God doesn't need us to come with strategies. He doesn't need us to go out and round up more workers. He says when the laborers are few, ask God to send laborers into his harvest. But I'm going to share something with you tonight that God showed me while I was teaching Wednesday night. You didn't get it. God showed it to me Wednesday night. For years we have read, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few, and we've read that as a bad thing. Have we not? Let's be honest. We've always read it as, there's a lot of people out there who need to be saved, and there's not enough workers. Isn't that how we've heard it? Not enough? But didn't we already study in Matthew that Jesus said that wide's the path that goes to destruction, and many go that way, and narrow is the road that leads to eternal life, and few there be that find it? Let me throw something out to you tonight that God has begun to open my eyes to. We've read Jesus as saying, there's not enough workers. I don't think he was. He actually wants him to be the one who determines where the workers go. The fact that there are few workers, the Bible says there's only going to be few saved as it is. 
So we shouldn't be surprised that there are few workers. He also doesn't say, pray that the Lord will send more workers into his harvest, does he? He just says, pray the Lord of the harvest to send his workers into his harvest field. Folks, stop reading it like we don't have enough people out there witnessing and actually let the scripture speak to you and let you see that all through scripture, God has said he gets more glory through the few that do it than the many. Remember Gideon? And God rounded up Gideon and says, I'm going to use you to defeat the Midianites. And the Bible says there were so many Midianites, you couldn't even count their camels. And he, grounds, he empowers him to round up 32,000 men. And God says, you got too many. 22,000 leave. He's down to 10,000. God says, you still got too many. And God narrows it down to 300. Doesn't sound like God needs a lot more workers to get his stuff done, does it? Stop reading this passage that way and pray over that. See if what God opened my eyes to last Wednesday, it doesn't make sense. Jesus says, the fields are white, ripe, ripe unto harvest, and the laborers are few in number, and that's not a bad thing, because that's where I do my best work. But I want you to do, though, is ask the pray to the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into his harvest field. He doesn't say spend more laborers, just his laborers into his harvest field. And I believe chapter 10 is the first answer to that prayer. Because what happens? The, then Jesus then calls to him 12 disciples. He gave him authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and affliction. And then you jump down to verse uh, 5. These 12 Jesus sent out. And what does he do? The same thing we've been talking about. We've been seeing it all through our study of Matthew. He determines where they go and when they go and to who they go. We've been seeing Jesus tell one guy, go home and tell your family what I've done. He's told others, don't tell anybody about what I've done. He's the one who controls when someone speaks and when they don't speak, where they go and where they don't go. And Jesus, actually, we see here, is this the first answer to that prayer. He now is going to send the workers out. But when he does, he actually does it in a very specific way. He instructs them to only go to the lost sheep of Israel and not to go to the towns of the Gentiles or the Samaritans. Now, please, he's not forbidding them to speak to Gentiles or Samaritans as they go, but to simply go to Jewish cities in this mission. You yourself know that Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 15, he said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel, correct? So did Jesus ever do anything with a Gentile or a Samaritan? Of course. He went out of his way at a certain time to go into Samaria and talk to the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. He at the same time in Matthew 15 dealt with the Gentile woman, the woman there from Tyre and Sidon. They're individuals that God would have him do ministry with. But as a whole, Jesus was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Jesus is sending them in the same way. We saw last week it's to the Jew first and then the Gentile. God has this plan. He doesn't need us to come up with plans. We don't have to get strategizing. Just walk with him and he'll show you where he wants you to go. Man, this stuff's so much easier and so much more fun than we've made it. We put so much pressure on ourselves and measuring how we're doing and have we reached them and what parts of the globe haven't been reached yet and all this kind of stuff. This sounds spiritual, but it acts like God doesn't have a plan. No, he's got a plan. He's been working it out from the beginning. And so what I want to do tonight is I want to teach you how to recognize where God's at work. Because he says, when you go into a town, let your peace go out. If it's received, stay. If not, move on. Well, what does it mean to let your peace go out? And how do we know if it's being received? And how do we know if it's not being received? And that's what I want to do tonight. I want to talk to you about that. This is called recognizing where God's spirit is at work and being responded to and where it's being rejected. Now, I want to teach you tonight how to recognize where God's at work 
and how to be a skilled and well-trained laborer in God's harvest field. As you remember, last week I gave a little commercial and I told you, when you ladies go into the produce department at the grocery store to buy a cantaloupe, just because they have cantaloupes on sale doesn't mean the cantaloupes are ripe, correct? So you just don't grab a cantaloupe, you want to pick a ripe cantaloupe. And what you probably do is squeeze it, sniff it, or thump it, correct? I want to teach you how to squeeze and sniff and thump people without getting arrested, to find out where they are in this process, because I believe the Bible says that as we let the Lord lead us, we're to go out into his harvest field as he leads us, where he tells us. But as we go, we're to be looking for where he's at work and where people are responding. And that's what I want to teach you how to do. So like I told you in the past, uh, we might have thought ourselves being at a Bible study. But tonight you are all migrant workers ready to go to work for me in my apple orchard and picking my apples, but I am not going to send you out into my apple orchard to pick my apples until I have trained you to recognize what a ripe apple looks like. Why? Why would I not send you out to go pick until I've trained you what a ripe apple looks like? I don't want you doing damage to my crop, right? Exactly. I want you to be trained. I don't want you going out there and harvesting things that aren't ready. Oh, and by the way, have we not done that for years? Haven't we filled our churches with rocky soil conversions and thorny soil conversions that sure sprung up? And we wonder why these people years down the road look like they never met the Lord? Because they didn't. Because we've been taught to go out there and get the work done without listening to Jesus. And so what I want to teach you tonight is how to recognize where God's at work. So here's, I'm going to give you three things to look for. Here's the first one. As you go out into the harvest field and you're squeezing and sniffing and thumping people, by the way, if you ever hang out with me in public with people that I've never met, you will watch me do this. I do it. I can't help it. It's, it's become instinct now. My wife and kids will tell you that. I want to find out, are they even seeking God? That's the first thing you're looking for. Are they even curious about spiritual things? Go with me to Romans chapter 3. We all know Romans chapter 3, verse 10, but I want you to see Romans chapter 3, verse 11. In Romans chapter 3, Look at verse 10. It says, as it is written, no one is righteous. None is righteous, not one. No, not one. No one understands and no one does what? No one seeks for God. Isn't that interesting? Nobody seeks for God. But wait a minute. Doesn't the Bible say that he rewards those who diligently seek him? Uh, no. Go to John chapter 6. The Bible says nobody seeks for God. In John chapter 6, though, look at verses 44 and 45. Jesus himself said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, before we go any further, the big question comes, well, does he draw everybody then? Go to verse 45. It is written in the prophets, and they will, what? What's that next word? All be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Did you catch that? Some translations say everyone that's listened comes to him. Those of you that have raised teenagers, is there a difference between them hearing you and listening? There's a big difference in God's world as well. Everybody hears. Everybody's without excuse. Everybody has in some measure or form had God's truth revealed to them. And Paul says in Romans chapter 2 that... God will judge every man's secret through Jesus Christ, as the gospel declares. Folks, don't worry about how and try to figuring it all out. Everybody hears 
Everybody is heard in some way, shape, or form. But listen, not everybody listens. So the first thing we're looking for is, are they even seeking God? Because no one will even seek for things of God. No one will even seek spiritual truth unless God had begun his work in their heart because Jesus says no one even comes to me unless the Father does his work first. As a pastor for years, whenever I'd be there on a Sunday morning and a visitor would come in the church door, a visiting family, I would never think to myself, ooh, possible church member. I didn't want them to become church members because once they became church members, they became a problem. I wanted to find out what God was doing because nobody walks in the door of a church unless God's already at work in their heart. You understand? My attitude was ding, 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 ding. My father's at work here because nobody just walks in the door of a church. Nobody seeks God. He begins his work in our heart. He's the one who, well, the Bible says in the book of Jeremiah that we're to break up the fallow ground. Who's the, if you guys are going to go garden and you're going to plant a crop of whatever, aren't you going to first take the hoe or the rototiller to the ground and break up the hard soil? Because you don't just go plant the seed, you break it up. And by the way, that's the Holy Spirit's work who begins to take the heart that doesn't even think about him and make him begin to even think about him. The Holy Spirit has to do his work. But you don't plant just yet. You then go and you get the rocks out of that soil before you throw the seed down. And then you get the weeds out of that soil, and then you plant your seed. The Bible says it's the Holy Spirit who does his work in the hearts of men. We are to go out into his harvest field and plant and water. It's God who takes care of the increase. So the first thing we're looking for is, are they even seeking God? Okay? That doesn't mean they're ready to be saved. They could be a long way from it. The second thing I want you to look for is this. If they're seeking God and they've begun and they're curious about spiritual things, do they understand the bad news? By the way, as to back to how do you even find out if they're spiritual, just mention things of, in your life about Bible study or church or whatever. A lot of times I'll be talking with somebody I've just met and I'll just reference and say, at my church this past week, this happened, you know, and I watch how they react. If they're curious, hey, maybe God's at work here. If not, we move on. You don't have to go get them there. It's not your job. Bible says that actually John chapter 16, verse 8, it's the Holy Spirit is going to convict the world of their sin and their guilt and their need of righteousness. So the second thing we're looking for is, though, if they're beginning to seek for God, do they know the bad news? See, we've been taught to go tell everybody the good news. The good news is Jesus died for your sins. Yet we've got a world out there who doesn't think they need a Savior. Most of the world today don't think they're in need of a Savior because they're pretty good people, right? Here we are saying, I got good news for you. It's like if you're like super, super skinny and I come up and say, I got great news for you. you. I got this weight loss pill. You're like, I don't need it. But if you're my size, you might want to listen. Then again, there are people my size that say, I don't need it. And the rest of us go, he's not ready. You know, that kind of a thing. In the same way, I want you to hear me. You need to now be sensing, okay, do they understand the bad news? What's the bad news? The bad news is they're a sinner and they're separated from God. And what does God use to help us understand the bad news? Does anybody know? The law. Go to Romans chapter 3. The law of God. In Romans chapter 3, look at verses 19 and following. Right after it says, there's no one righteous, no one understands, no one seeks God. There's no fear of God in their eyes. It says in verse 18, Verse 19 says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be accountable, held accountable to God. So who's under the law? The whole world. Paul's already laid it out. 
The Jews are under the law and the Gentiles are under the law. Even though the Gentiles never heard God's written law, he wrote his law in their hearts. They were born with a sense of right and wrong and a conscience, and he's already revealed to them their lawbreakers. They go against their conscience all the time. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law and the whole world. Sorry, that, that, that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes what? The knowledge of sin. All you need to do in those situations is then talk to them about their need for a Savior and the fact that they're separated because of a holy God. Go to Luke chapter 18. You'll see Jesus do this. Over the years, and I've preached to churches, and I'll say, when Jesus met the rich young ruler, what did Jesus tell him to do? And everybody says, sell everything. Well, guess what? That's not what he said to do. That's the second thing he said to do. Go look at what he actually said. It's going to blow your mind. Look at Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 18. It says, And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Hang on for a second. Was Jesus saying that he wasn't God? No. What's he doing? He's trying to find out where this guy is in his level of understanding. Where is in his level of faith? Nobody calls, no one's good except God alone. And then Jesus says something interesting. Because the guy said, what am I must study do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, you know the commandments. Don't commit adultery. Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. And the guy said, all these I have kept from my youth. Now I can picture Jesus under his breath going, liar, that's one. But... <laughs> At this point, the guy doesn't realize he's broken the law of God. But why does Jesus, when the man says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why does Jesus say, go keep the law? It shows you you can't. The purpose of the law is to show you you can't keep it. And actually, all it does is the Bible shows us is fuel more sin. I wouldn't even know what sinning, the coveting was. Paul said if the law didn't say don't covet. But once it said don't covet, all this covetous desire rose up in me. The power of sin, 1 Corinthians 15, 56, is the law. What fuels sin is the law. The purpose of the law is to show us our need of a Savior. Now, the guy says, I've done this since my youth. So what Jesus does, don't miss this, is he just repackages the law in a different form and gives it back to him. You can double check me for the sake of time. I want you to just, just write this down, look at it later on. But in Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40, Jesus says that it, the Love your Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself sums up all the law and the prophets. In other words, God's taken all the law, and he's put it into just two commands. Love God with everything you have, and love your neighbor as yourself. So this guy says, I've been able to keep the whole law since my youth. Jesus says, you know what? You lack one thing. Here's what I want you to do. You go, and you sell everything you have, and give it to the poor. That's loving your neighbor as yourself. And then, here's the second thing. Come follow me. That's loving God with everything you have. What does the guy do? He goes away sad. Does Jesus just get him to pray the prayer? He's not there yet. We don't know if he ever gets there. But Jesus doesn't chase him. Many of us, unfortunately, have been taught that you've got to get them to come to that decision today. And we're not willing to just let somebody go. What's really freeing is to go out into the harvest field and know that sometimes God's going to use your words and they're going to come to know Him, and there's going to be most of the time they won't. Why can't we be okay with that? Because our flesh wants credit. We want to know that we're good at it. We want some glory. 
What if your job, and I'm going to show you that in just a second, what if your job is just to go out there and scatter seed or to water it, but you don't ever really see the harvest very often? Are you okay with that? Are you happy to go out in the field and be the guy that just sows the seed? Or do you have to be the guy that comes later on and picks it all up? See, we've got to be willing to be the way it workers in God's harvest field. He's got this plan. He's got it in motion for years. He actually put it in motion before the foundation of the world. He doesn't need your help, but it's fun to go out not having to produce, but to just go be a faithful worker however he wants. Real quickly, I'm going to give you two valuable tools for your toolbox. Now, I say that for a reason. I got no problem with you learning Share Jesus Without Fear or the Roman Road or uh, the Four Spiritual Laws or Evangelism Explosion. I got no problem with you learning different techniques and how to share the gospel. What I want to warn you of is saying this is the one I use all the time because it works. You don't know what you're going to be dealing with. And if you do a study of scripture, you'll see that how Jesus dealt with Nicodemus is totally different from how he dealt with the woman at the well. And so when you ever go to do a job of repair, if you will, you're going to bring with you your toolbox because you don't know if you're going to need a screwdriver or a hammer or a wrench or if the screwdriver needs to be a Phillips or a regular, right? You just don't know. So I got no problem with you putting more tools in your toolbox. Learn all these different techniques for sharing the gospel. I think they're valuable. There's some more ones out there now, three circles and all this kind of stuff. I got no problem. Beware of anybody that says this is the one you have to use all the time because then you're putting power in the method instead of the gospel itself. Let me give you a couple more tools for your toolbox. James chapter 2, you don't have to turn there. James chapter 2, verse 10 says this. If you're able to keep all of God's law, yet stumble at just one point, you're guilty as if you broke it all. Many a time I've shared with somebody who thought they were pretty righteous. I'll say, let me ask you a quick question. Have you ever broken any of God's laws? Well, he goes, of course. Everybody has. Well, let me read to you this verse. Let me tell you about this verse. It says, if you're able to keep every bit of God's law, yet stumble at just one point, you're guilty in the eyes of God as if you broke it all. And a lot of times I've said to people, good luck with that. Why? I want the Spirit to do His work. Let me give you another one. John chapter 5, verse 22. A lot of people out there in the world today think that one day they're going to die, and the big guy upstairs, the Father in heaven, is going to weigh their good and their bad. John chapter 5, verse 22 says this, God the Father judges no one, but has handed all judgment over to the Son. Oh, and by the way, the son's measurement is not what you did, but whether or not he knows you. These are some things that will be good for your toolbox, and let the Spirit of God take you there. Years ago, I was pastor at this church, and a man in the church wanted me to get his buddies that he golfed with saved. So he figured the preacher would do a good job, better job than him, so he paid for my golf to be able to come. And he put me in the golf cart with one of his buddies for the purpose of me sharing the gospel with his buddy. Now, his buddy knew why the preacher was there. He wasn't too excited about that round of golf. I get in the golf cart, introduce myself. We haven't even gotten to the first tee box yet. And he turns to me and he says, Preacher, let's get something straight. I said, what's that? He goes, I don't think man should determine what sin is. Now, I know why he said this. He thought that I was going to sit there and try to convince him he was a sinner, and I was going to tell him he was sinning this way and sinning that way and all that. So to quickly put up the wall, he said, man should not determine what sin is. I said, I agree 100%. He said, okay, good. I said, but since you brought this up, <laughs> let me ask you a quick question. If you were to die today, would you go to heaven? And his answer was, yes, I would. And this man's in his 70s. I said, that's awesome. How do you know? He said, well, I have been a good person. And I think I'm going to be okay. I said, hang on for a second. 
Let me ask you a question. The Bible says that Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sins. If we can get to heaven by being good, why did Jesus die on the cross? That seemed like a horrible waste of time if we can get to heaven by being good. Now, typically, most people will say, I never thought about that. This guy says, I have an answer for that. I said, I'd love to hear it. He said, I have only committed venial sins. He said, I've not committed any mortal sins. He said, Jesus died on the cross to cover mortal sins. I've not committed a mortal sin. I've only committed venial sins. Therefore, I don't need Jesus' death to cover me. I can be good enough because I don't need him to cover me because I haven't had any mortal sins. I said, that's pretty cool. I said, let me ask you a quick question. I said, I've read the whole Bible. I don't see anywhere in the Bible where some sins are mortal sins and others are venial sins. Who came up with that? And he goes, the priests did. I said, let me ask you a quick question. I said, are the priests men? He goes, yeah, why? I go, because you started this whole thing by saying you don't think man should determine what sin is. He goes, I've talked myself into a corner, haven't I? I said, listen to me. Jesus died on the cross to cover all sins. And unless he's covered your sins, you're not going to heaven, even if you think you are. And until we all acknowledge that we need Jesus, none of us will be saved. And I said, I'm not going to talk about this anymore unless you ask me a question. Let's go play golf. We hadn't even gotten to the first tee when this all happened. And by the way, I had never had that happen to me. No one had ever given that answer to me. And the answer he gave me, which you guys are all sitting there going, wow, what a cool answer. That was the Lord. Because I had no idea. I was throwing a curveball, and the Holy Spirit just told me what to say. It, was all, it wasn't my training. It wasn't my schooling. There was no class on that. It was the Holy Spirit, and he'll do the same for you. Are they seeking God? Do they understand the bad news? Third thing's real simple, by the way. If they are seeking God, and they understand the bad news, in other words, they realize they're a sinner, and they need help, number three is real easy. Tell them the good news. Tell them the good news. And I hope you don't need a ton of scriptures for that. I think you understand Romans chapter, John chapter 3, verse 16, that God so loved the world that whoever believes in his son would have eternal life, right? You'd understand that. Hopefully you understand Romans chapter 3. We're in Romans. Go back to Romans chapter 3, the very next passage in our section. It talks about how no one sees God and no one's righteous. But then it also says that his law reveals to us our sin. And then in Romans chapter 3, look at verses 21 and following. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. Hopefully you understand there's way more scriptures than just that. Acts chapter 4, verse 12, there's no another name under heaven by which we must be saved. The Bible is real clear that the good news is, is that the only way we get to heaven is believe that God sent his own son. And he took on human form and he lived without sin. And he lived the life we could not live. And then God punished him instead of us. And he rose from the dead and he will give eternal life to all who would believe that what Jesus did covers them. By the way, if anybody understands that, it's not because you worded it right. It's because the spirit of God did his work. And let me say a couple things to you. I know what time it is and I'm going to move fast. Stop thinking that you're the only person in the field. Stop thinking you're the only worker in God's harvest field. But Jim, there's only few. That's where God does his best work and he doesn't need more of you. Go to John chapter 4. Go to John chapter 4. Look at verses 34 through 38. Jesus has just finished this conversation 
with the woman at the well. The disciples had gone into the town to buy food. They're trying to get him to eat. And he says to them in verse 34 of John 4, he said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months? Then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Like you've heard me say in times past, Jeremiah and Isaiah probably thought nobody ever listened. But God used the writings of Jeremiah and Isaiah to have many come to faith. Even the Ethiopian eunuch many, many years ago. Are you willing to just go out into his harvest field and love people and squeeze and sniff and thump and tell them about Jesus? Plant the seed. Just leave it out there. Water it by living a Christian life that looks like Jesus. And just, just let him do his work. You'll be amazed how many people God uses you in their life. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 5 through 9, don't turn there. Paul says, one plants, another waters. It's God who provides the increase. But when we've been taught how to share the gospel by starting on page one of the tract and getting them to pray the prayer at the end of the tract, like we're to start the work and then finish it there, God does that sometimes, praise the Lord, but very rarely. Just go out into his harvest field and you don't know whether or not you're planting or watering or harvesting. You don't even know. Go out there and find out and see what he does. Now, as we close, I want to tell a quick story and I've got two minutes to do it. Years ago, I had the privilege of teaching 200 pastors for a week in Thailand. And when I was there, it was at a Christian conference center there, and pastors came from all over Thailand, and I was teaching them the principles of a God-centered church. And during the first break, I go to the cafeteria, and across from me at the cafeteria sits down this individual. The reason I say individual is, at that time, I couldn't tell if this individual was a male or a female. I'm serious. How they looked, how they dressed, the tattoos, the piercings, the way they, the clothing, the haircut. I didn't know if it was a boy or a girl that was sitting across from me, but they were in their 20s. And I said, hi, my name's Jim. What's yours? And this individual says, my name is beer. I said, beer like the drink? And he goes, yes. I said, why is your name beer? He goes, well, actually, my real name is Chris, but I want to be called beer because that's what I live for. And everybody calls me beer. And I, I said straight up to him, I said, beer, let me ask you a question. What are you doing here? This is a Christian conference center, and I'm here to teach for a week about the Bible. And it's obvious, you're not here for that. And he goes, no, I'm not here for that. I don't want to talk about that. But I heard that an American was going to be here teaching for a week, and I want to practice my English. So I'm going to follow you all week. I thought to myself, you don't know what you just signed yourself up for, but okay. <laughs> Every time I would try to steer the conversation, though, to things of God, squeezing, sniffing, and thumping, he would quickly go, uh-uh, we're not talking about that. And so I'd leave it alone until another time the Spirit of God would release me to just say something, because he kept sticking around. I couldn't shake my feet and shake the dust off because he was following me. By the end of the week, beer hadn't come any closer to coming to faith. But I told, I told him, I said, look, I may never see you again, and I want to see you one more time. I said, I'm going to be preaching at Takaset Church in Bangkok, Thailand, right before I get on an airplane to fly back to America. Would you make me a promise that you'll meet me 
at that Takaset church. Do you know where that is? He goes, yeah, I live in Bangkok. I know where Takaset church is. I said, would you promise me you'll meet me there? I want to see you one more time. I'm going to be preaching at that church. He said, I promise I'll be there. So he shows up. Of course, he doesn't come on time. I'm sitting there looking, and he comes in late. But when he comes in, I quickly jump up from where I am, and I sit in the back, and I have him sit next to me, and I said, I said, Beer, you got to help me out. I said, uh, I don't know what they're saying. It's all in their language, and I don't understand what they're saying. Could you tr- be my translator? Could you show me what they're saying? He said, yes. And so he's repeating to me everything that's going on, the words of the songs, how they're praising Jesus and all this stuff. They take the Lord's Supper every week, and they did that as a part of the service. I acted like I had never seen it before. I said, what are they doing up there? Is that a Thailand thing? He goes, well, it looks like they're eating this bread that represents the body of Jesus and how it was broken for us and drinking this cup that represents his blood and how it was shed for us. Tell me more. This is cool. And I just let him. He's repeating everything that's being said. When it was time for me to get up and preach, I went from the back of the church up and with a translator, I preached to the church. Service was over and I'm about to head out the door. And I said to Beer, actually, I said, I hope I see you again one day in heaven. He said, would you do me a favor? I said, what's that? He goes, would you give me your email? I want to continue emailing with you to practice my English some more. I said, okay. By the way, his email was lethal calamity at Hotmail. Serious. Lethal calamity. So when I get back to America, I text with him for a while. I mean, email back and forth. About a month into our email conversations, he's writing emails like he's a Christian. And I, I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute. He's, he's sharing things that only a Christian would understand. So I emailed him back and I said, Beer, are you a Christian now? This is the email that he wrote. He said, Pastor Jim, I'm sorry for not telling you that I have become a Christian already. I decided to give my life to Jesus just a month after you had left Thailand then. I'm sorry that I didn't keep in touch with you due to my busy study. Actually, I was thinking of writing an email to tell you that I was reborn, but I was stuck with such many things that I forgot to tell you. Honestly, after you had left here, I keep going to the church every Sunday, wondering and protesting. Anyway, I became more and more open to Christ. And one day, I believe God is real, suddenly after seeing a woman healed from crippled. All I want to do is saying thank you for putting me in the right way of God. If it wasn't because of our promise to meet again at Takaset Church, I wouldn't have tried to go join the church and got such a new life. Hope to see you again, Chris. Isn't that awesome? Folks, that's our whole Bible study. That's his work. I didn't know if I had any effect at all. But God used me in some way, and he got a new name. I love you. See you next week. Thanks for coming.